Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Sunday. After that glorious celebration last week of the day of Pentecost, and after thinking about and recalling how this exciting, personal, and joyful gift of the Holy Spirit has come down into our lives, some of you may be tempted to say this morning, Oh no, here we go again. All that theological stuff. It's Trinity Sunday. And they're going to make me stand up for a very, very long time for that tongue-twisting creed. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but let me ask you to hang in there with me very briefly this morning. And I do mean briefly. When the writer of Hebrews says, I've written to you briefly, it takes him 13 chapters to do so. But uh, I will not be anywhere so long. But I do really feel that there is something of great value for us here this morning. The church has felt so for centuries. And I think, especially if you come from a Bible-believing and Bible-oriented background, there are some treasures that you may find helpful this morning. So let me invite you to take out this handout. It's only half as long as the Pentecost one. And let's begin together. So the first question is this. Why in the world do we need the creeds at all? I mean, why do we need to add anything to the Bible? Isn't the Bible supposed to be sufficient? Don't we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, of course we do. But let me ask a question in return. How hard is it to read the Bible? Now, with respect to salvation, somewhere or another in Scripture, the Holy Spirit has spoken so plainly that even a child can read it for himself or herself and believe. But when it comes to other matters, it is, in fact, far more difficult. The 39 Articles begins this way. I've given it to you in your handout there. This is how it starts. The one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Now, friends, our faith begins with an infinite mercy, infinite mystery, an infinite mystery. The persons of the nature of God. So, how difficult then do you think it might be when we try and read and understand what the scriptures say about these things? I would suggest for you that it is very difficult indeed. Now, if you were asked to eat an elephant all by yourself, that would be a Herculean task. Wouldn't it be far better to get a whole village of hungry people to work on the project with you together? Well, in the same way, we can be very grateful that the Holy Spirit didn't simply drop the Bible out of heaven on each one of us individually and then say, go make sense out of it for yourself. The Holy Spirit has always been present in the church, helping us 
collectively to read Scripture and to understand the things of God together. Indeed, two heads are better than one, and 10,000 believers reading God's Word together are even better still. That is what the creeds are. You see, the creeds are the church gathered together reading Scripture. Well, what then do the creeds do for you and me as individuals? Well, first of all, when we read the Bible, if we read it, we're trying to read it thoughtfully. And as you read it thoughtfully, you draw conclusions, don't you? And you form mental pictures, don't you? Now, the creeds don't answer all your questions. They don't fill in every detail. But what they do for us is that they show us where the boundaries are. As you and I think about God and think about the things that we read from Scripture, the creeds say your thinking must land between here and here. If your thinking lands out here, you've not thought as thinkfully as you could thought. In fact, you're no longer reading Scripture rightly. In fact, you've left the authentic faith that was handed on to the apostles. The creeds provide boundaries how we read the Scripture. The second thing that the creeds do is they give us the right words about divine mysteries. The right words about divine mysteries. Now think about the difference in these two statements, okay? Jesus is a God. Jesus is God. You see, a single letter makes all the difference in the world. The creeds give us the right words to use when we think thoughtfully about God. Now, as Anglicans, we acknowledge there are three creeds that have been given to us as drawn from Scripture and helping us to understand Scripture. The first, of course, is the Nicene Creed. We say that every time we have a communion service. We say the Nicene Creed. And what the Nicene Creed does is it puts boundaries around all the symbolism of the table of the Eucharist. It helps us to know what the Eucharist means and what the Eucharist doesn't mean. Further, the contents of the Nicene Creed are acknowledged by every true Christian denomination. Even if they don't recite the creed, they acknowledge the truth of the contents of that creed. And friends, if you cannot say the Nicene Creed without your fingers crossed, you simply aren't part of the true church. That's where the boundaries are. Now, the second creed that we acknowledge is the Apostles' Creed. Of course, the Apostles' Creed didn't really come directly from the Apostles, although the elements that are cited in it have been recited by Christians at their baptism for as far back as we have records. That means all the way back to the start of the second century, the contents of the Apostles' Creed is what a person claims when they become a Christian. 
We call it the Apostles' Creed because it has 12 lines that remind us of the 12 apostles. But it goes all the way back to the very first part of the second century. Now on Trinity Sunday, you go, fortunately, only once a year, on Trinity Sunday, we Anglicans also recite the Athanasian Creed. It was formally written late in the 5th century, but it was based on truths that first Athanasius and then Augustine insisted that the church acknowledge and believe. And early on, some people in the church said, oh, come on, what's all the fuss about anyway? Let's just love God and get along with one another. That's pretty much the history of the 4th century. But others said, yeah, yeah, not that creed. I got better words to talk about God than those. But after more than a century of conversation, the church eventually realized, yes, this is the best way to talk about the oneness of God and the threeness of God and how to talk about the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to say the Athanasian Creed here in a couple of minutes, okay? But first I want to give you the cleft notes on what it means. What does it say? Now, I've given you three different ways to think about it there in your handout, okay? One of those might be helpful for you. Now, the first way to think about what the Athanasian Creed is saying is a graphic analogy. It's a picture that speaks to some folks. In fact, it was particularly helpful for Christians in the very early Middle Ages. You could have gone into a church then and seen this picture drawn on the wall of a church. You might have seen soldiers with it drawn on their shields. Now, the second way that you might think about the contents of the creed is through a logical or grammatical analogy. And in the high Middle Ages, many people found this to be very helpful. I'll let you look at it there. A third way that one might think about the contents of the creed is that it teaches us something with a relational analogy. Or in fact, it's really not an analogy at all because it uses this kind of thinking. It says, if God is so great, then drawing an analogy won't help us at all because he's not like anything else. So the best way to talk about God is simply to talk about God with reference to himself. And so it says, who is the Father? Well, he is the one who begets the Son before all time, before all eternity, in fact, before all everything. That's who the Father is. Well, who is the Son? Well, he is the one who is eternally begotten of God the Father. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he is the one who proceeds from the Father through the Son. Now, whichever one of these analogies is meaningful for you, perhaps the most useful question I could put to you this morning is this one. 
Okay, so what does the teaching of the creed mean to me in my everyday life? What does this mean to me? And I like to suggest four things of practical usefulness that will appear this week because of this creed. Here's the first one. It has to do with your prayers. Hopefully, all of us have had the opportunity to pray with others, right? Anybody here put up your hands if you prayed with others? A couple of you guys need to show up on Wednesday nights. Okay. Okay. You've prayed with others. And as you've done so, right, you've heard people say, Father, 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 a dozen times. Okay? And then somebody else will stand up and pray, and they'll say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And occasionally somebody else might stand up, not quite so frequently, but say, Oh, Holy Spirit of God. So the question is, is one of those any better than another to pray? Well, from what we learn from the creed is, no. <laughs> For to address any one member of the creed, is to, uh, of the Trinity, is to address all the members of the Godhead. Though sometimes, you see, when we do pray, it is helpful and useful to pray to a particular person of the Trinity by focusing on what that person does or his function in the Trinity. For example, we might speak to the Father about matters of divine will. It is the Father that has chosen us for the faith. So we might pray to the Father on behalf of on behalf of an unsaved person. We might address our thanksgiving to the Son as we reflect on the benefits of what he accomplished on the cross. And we would pray to the Holy Spirit to ask him to come and fill our minds for that, his, his function to dwell with us and bring us the fullness of the Godhead. Here's a second practical application of this creed. It helps us to clarify our experience of God in our salvation. Our experience of salvation. You know, often, the little ones just went out the door, but often, you know, and we're going to do this at Vacation Bible Camp, I really hope, we encourage little ones, right? We say, invite Jesus to come into your life. That's a great thing. But sometimes as they grow up, that starts to lead to confusion. Well, if Jesus was raised in a body, how does he fit inside my heart? Was he really raised bodily at all, if he can get in there? Is that what my resurrection is going to look like? Sort of some unseen vapor somewhere? We speak of Jesus being with us at the moment, but we certainly don't see him, do you? Some might even speak about feeling Jesus' presence. But does that mean that the Christian life is really nothing more than just sort of a nice way of talking about things and not a genuine reality at all? Well, the creed helps us answer these questions 
It tells us how Christ is present in my heart. How is Christ present at this table? It is, in fact, a whole lot more than simply just nice, warm thoughts like the spirit of Christmas or the spirit of Thanksgiving or the spirit of love or whatever. Because God is present in the person of a genuine reality, the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, he is present in a whole new form of reality. Thirdly, the creed helps us understand God, who is a model for how we ought to live in relationships with others. Now, follow the logic here with me, okay? In the Western world, you are what you do, right? Yep. We respect kings and deans of the cathedral. We respect presidents as somebody great. But a stable boy? Eh, yeah, maybe. Yet, in the Trinity, there is equality of honor and dignity, even though there is a diversity of roles. The Father determines and wills. The Son doesn't have his own will. His will is aligned to do the Father's will. The Son accomplishes and fulfills the Father's will. The Spirit completes and sustains the will of the Father. Now, friends, the implications of this are huge, particularly in the Western world. If in the Trinity there is equality of honor and dignity, but a diversity of roles, then it is appropriate to have different roles and different kinds of authority in life, in the church, and in the family. Humanity is not diminished by having different roles for men and for women, for boys and for girls in society at large. In fact, such distinctions are a part of our nature, and yet they exist without a single loss of dignity or worth. Or to put it another way, to be under authority does not demean us. But in fact, it makes us like Jesus. Finally, the creed challenges our thinking about our priorities, doesn't it? You and I live in the world where the bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Status and success trump love and relationships, don't they? Now, every day you and I are given an opportunity to make choices. Tiny little ones and great big ones. 
And these choices cause us to reflect upon our priorities. The creed teaches us that the most intrinsic quality of reality is relationship. Relationship. How high does that stand on your priorities? God doesn't exist in some kind of cold isolation somewhere. He exists and thrives and rejoices in a loving unity and connection among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be. That is what existence is, to be in relationship with others. So here's the pointy end of the bullet this morning. Is there some relationship that you need to repair or invest in this morning? Is there someone that you have neglected? Is there someone you have rejected? What is God the Holy Spirit telling you this morning you need to do about it? You see, the creed teaches us the basis of reality is relationship. So I ask you, will you choose to live in relationship this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to bring us back into relationship with you. Send now your powerful Holy Spirit upon us that we might choose love and life and relationship with those whom your Son created and put around us. And these things we pray in his name. Amen.